Aloha. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Happy holidays! Tis the season and many of us are jumping for joy at the thought of another holiday time. If you're like me, you're wondering, where did the year go? But what about those for whom holidays are not a magical time, those who have lost loved ones or who have suffered tragedy around this time? Depression is an important condition to know about, and if you or your loved ones are suffering, it's time to reach out for help. Psychologist Dr. Martin Johnson and Dr. Don Harada are in the studio here to tell us more about the signs and symptoms of depression and if the holidays really do cause the blues. We'll be taking your calls in just a few minutes at 941-3689 on Oahu, toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. First in medical news, for all those with resistant hypertension or high blood pressure that is hard to treat with more than one medicine, a new culprit may be to blame. In a recent issue of the journal The American Medical Association, Sleep apnea might be the reason. Treatment for three months with continuous positive airway pressure devices, known as CPAP machines, while sleeping, can significantly reduce both systolic and diastolic blood pressure. Those are those numbers, top and bottom, when you check your blood pressure. And even if it's reduced as little as two to three points, this can reduce the risk of stroke by 6 to 8%, heart attack by 4 to 5%. Doctors have thought that there can be a benefit from treating the apnea. However, this is one of the first randomized clinical trials to prove it. Those with resistant high blood pressure may want to be tested, see if they have sleep apnea, and if they do, start on treatment as soon as possible. Do you need to take daily multivitamins? Well, there's been a bit of controversy about the usefulness of taking these. Some studies have shown no benefit, others maybe. But now in a study published today in the Annals of Internal Medicine, a long-term trial of about 6,000 male doctors has resulted in no benefit to cognitive function or any protective effect against hypertension, high cholesterol, diabetes, or other chronic diseases. Now, it's possible that if you look at long-term studies on a generally well-nourished group of doctors, you might not see any changes, but at this time, take it if you want to, but a multivitamin might not be as necessary as you think. Antibacterial soaps, better than soap and water? Safe? Well, these questions and more are going to be answered soon if the FDA has their way. Popular ingredients such as triclosan and triclocarban are going to be are going to have to be tested and proven to be safe for humans if they're going to be continually used in popular products sold over the counter. Animal studies suggested a possible hormone imbalance, and there are some questions about the efficacy. This time, the FDA has said, show me the data, and will require companies to test these products before making claims about how good they work. How are you feeling about the holidays? Do you look at the end of the year as a time to rejoice or to regret? Well, Dr. Martin Johnson and Dr. Don Harada are in the studio today. We're going to be talking about depression around the holidays and what are some simple things that you can do to recognize this problem in your loved ones? Or even if you're experiencing something yourself, who can you reach out to for help? Dr. Johnson, Dr. Harada, welcome to The Body Show. Thank, Thank you. you. Now, tell me, Dr. Johnson, we were talking earlier, true or false, holiday blues. Is it real? Is it a myth? Do we make it up? What are we talking about here? 
Well, you know, Kathy, it's kind of interesting because for several years now in the media, um, psychologists, including myself, have been on the air about this time of year talking about the holiday blues. And, and we've sort of inadvertently created a myth. And the myth is that people get more depressed or more people get depressed during the holidays. And that's not actually true. Uh, people are no more likely to get depressed around the holidays than they are any other time of year, generally speaking. However, for those people who may be depressed, then the holidays can be a particularly difficult time. So we're like mythbusters today. A little bit, yeah. Okay, so you, there's not an increased number of people who get depressed during the holidays. That's correct. Could happen all year round. That's right. All right. Uh, but do the seasons bring out some feelings in some folks or, you know, we're just we're just busting this myth right now? Well, you know, in your intro, you were talking about people who've lost a loved one or suffered a tragedy. Um, oftentimes, if people are grieving, um, the first, particularly the first year of grieving a loved one, the holidays can be particularly difficult because it may be the first year they're, they're going through the holiday rituals without their loved one. Um, or it brings back a memory of um, something that happened on or around the holidays. So anniversaries, first year of grieving, those are particularly difficult times. Um, but otherwise, yeah, generally people aren't any more depressed this time of year than any other. So, you know, if you have a birthday from a loved one and it's in July or it's in December, either way, you could go through this grieving process. You miss the person that is no longer with you, and it doesn't matter what time of year. That's right. If it's the first first birthday of the departed loved one, then that's going to be hard. And no, matter matter what, what no matter what time sure. it is. It yeah. could be, mm-hmm. you know, Valentine's could make somebody upset. Mm-hmm. They lost their loved one oh, as absolutely. well. absolutely. Sure. Any time of the year. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Hirata, what are some of the common symptoms of depression just in and of itself? Mm-hmm. Well, the most um, obvious one is, of course, uh, feeling sad, kind of bluesy, depressed. Um, oftentimes you hear people saying, you know, I just don't enjoy what I used to enjoy. So, you know, maybe if they like surfing or movies, you know, they'll try and do it for a little bit, but they'll be like, does, I just don't get happy anymore. Um, a lot of times their sleep is affected, concentration, and memory, um, and just their I- ability to be as effective in their uh, different roles, work, social, as they were before. Now, some people, they sleep too much when they're depressed. Other people, they can't sleep. Kind of the same with food. Some people, you know, they eat too much when they're depressed. Other people, food just makes them nauseous. Why is it such a dichotomy with the symptoms in people? Any idea? Is it just dependent on the individual? Yeah. As far as I know, there's no research on that. And my experience of working with people is some people just can't stop eating once they're depressed and other people just can't, can't face, you know, actually, you know, putting down a meal and they just force themselves to eat a little bit. Um, it really is, though, we know that depression just sort of sort of upsets the usual rhythm and pleasure centers in the brain. And, and so they're, they're just not connected to their usual rhythms and they're not connected to the things that usually give them joy or pleasure. Now, if you're not sleeping enough, if for whatever reason you're not getting adequate rest, can that mimic the symptoms of depression? You know, There's a recent study that um, shows that treating insomnia that often accompanies depression improves treatment outcome for people who are depressed. So so it seems to be that it works both ways, right? The depression causes or contributes to the insomnia, but then the insomnia seems to perpetuate or make the depression worse. Mm -hmm. Um, And and so, you know, that that whole sleep piece is, is really very important. And oftentimes when people start to recover from depression, when they've received treatment, um, you see the sleep and the eating improve first. 
So those are some physical signs. Mm -hmm. They can see, other people around them can see that they're doing better, whether it be sleeping on a more regular schedule or getting enough rest, eating enough or not eating too much, something visible that you could see. Mm -hmm. Yes. Now, if you were worried about a loved one who might be getting older, could the age-related changes to the body also contribute to being depressed or making them just not feel like they're able to do as much as they used to? You know, depression can really strike at all ages. Um, And for some people, uh, as we get older and uh, we experience the inevitable changes in in the body and in our uh, abilities to sort of do things, um, that can contribute to depression. But actually, I think where it gets missed more often is in childhood. Um, A lot of people have this myth that children cannot get depressed. Or why would a child be depressed? They have nothing to worry about. Um, But actually, children suffer depression um, very much like adults, although they may express it a little differently. I feel like we have another myth we busted. Could be. Okay, so myth number one that we busted is holidays, more people get depressed. Nope, anytime. Myth number two, children can get depressed. Absolutely. That's, that's something that you. I, I think you're right. You know, we don't necessarily see that in children. Maybe we don't look for it because we assume they're happy, they're playing, they're doing stuff, and we don't recognize some of the sources that could be giving them depression. Or, you know, who knows what the source may be. What would... If somebody out there was looking at their kids and saying, I wonder if my kids are depressed, is it harder to determine in kids than it is in adults? Are there differing symptoms? Are they more subtle? How do we overlook this so much? I think um, it, it's not necessarily more subtle. It's not um, what you would classically think of as depression. So a lot of times um, you see maybe acting out differently, a change in behavior at school, um, difference in how they're interacting with peers, so that kind of thing, um, whereas they, can't, they won't nor- come out and say, I'm sad or I'm depressed. How would a parent know? I mean, they might know if, you know, Johnny's getting demerits at school and he's being kept after for behavior. They may not know if kids are interacting different with their peers. What might be something a parent could look at and say, you know, I've got a concern? Well, sort of like with adults, anything that's a change. Like we said with adults, they might sleep more, they might sleep less. It's a sudden change in pattern. Um, Same with appetite. So a child also may have changes in appetite, changes in sleep, changes in mood. They may be more irritable. And as a parent, it's like, really, my child's irritable? So, you know, my child's irritable off and on on a normal basis. But but if it's a marked change, also they um, lose interest in things they used to enjoy. That's sort of similar to adults. But with kids, it's like, well, last year he liked soccer. This year he likes baseball. But if he's depressed, maybe he stopped liking soccer But there's nothing new taking that place. Gotcha. Soccer and baseball, no sports. I'm not outdoors, Mm -hmm. not enjoying any activities as opposed to substituting one for another. And the other thing is a withdrawal. Oftentimes depressed kids will withdraw. And and that's usually a a sign of concern. Now, when people talk about psychotherapy, you know, there's often some people still have a stigma. They say, I don't know what it is. I don't want to do it. But I think these days for, you know, I often tell people, hey, if you have high blood pressure, you come to me. I treat your blood pressure. We figure out a way to monitor it. We have a goal that we set. You know, we want to keep it below a certain number. And we help you to achieve that either through medication or through exercise, diet, etc. When people come to see psychotherapists, Are they commonly being seen for things that are easy to treat? I mean, is it are people coming in for things that you can identify, set goals and see the same type of response? 
Oftentimes, yes. Um, it, it's usually, but they won't. It won't be as clear. It, they'll come in with a story. You know, like sort of this is happening to me. I don't know why nowadays I can't handle this the same way. I'm just really grouchy. I'm irritable or I'm really sad, um, that kind of thing. And um, through talking and through assessment, you kind of come to, you know, in our we come to kind of a, this is what the issues are and this is what maybe your goals would be and you know, that kind of thing. So it would more often come in as with a story versus I'm depressed. or So anybody fearful that it's not going to be as straightforward, really, you can come up with a set of goals, a plan, uh, a way to achieve those goals, understand why they're your goals, and really help you to get to the point where you have a better perspective on your story, Mm -hmm. or you can handle it better. Yes. You know, in the movies and in the media, psychotherapy, whenever it is portrayed, um, seems to be this really dramatic, long-lasting um, thing that's going to go on and on forever. And and it really typically isn't that way at all. Um, nationally, the average number of sessions in a psychotherapy is six. And, you know, a major uh, insurer in town feeds me back information on my data and tells me my average is seven. Now, I don't know if that makes me a better therapist because I work with people longer or a worse therapist because it takes me longer. I don't know. But there's a wide range. But typically, I always tell people, if you're not feeling better by the fifth session, something's not right. We either need to change what we're doing or change therapists. Or, you know, So by the fifth session, people should be feeling better um, and they should be seeing how it's working for them. So there's different, and, and another myth is all psychotherapy is the same, and yet there's different types of therapy. There's different uh, branches of psychotherapy, cognitive behavioral analysis. There's other ways that people are treated. What are the most common ones that you would use in your practice, Dr. Hirata? What is there a method to how you approach things that is that is particularly unique, or is there a, a way that you go about taking care of some of your clients? Yes, I think I come more from the I think the school, if you want to say cognitive behavioral therapy, where um, it's it's kind of a looking at it where. You have, um, you know, you come in because there's a mood, a mood thing, a mood change or feeling depressed, feeling anxious. And it's about looking at the interaction of that with other parts of your life. So what's going on? What's the what's the event happening? What's the behavior? What is the mood and what is the thinking that goes along with that? So my approach is always to kind of increase awareness of what's going on, because a lot of times it will be part of the distress is what's going on with me. Why do I feel this way sometimes and why do I? not feel this way sometimes. So it's kind of that awareness um, and kind of looking at specific instances in their life and kind of isolating the mood, what's the thoughts, and kind of um, helping them come up with different ways of thinking that can help their effective state. So when people come in with their story, Mm -hmm. they may feel like they're self-aware, but there may be some other areas of their life that they don't realize they might be repeating that same pattern in. Mm-hmm. And then you work with them to identify that and help them to achieve those goals till they feel better. Dr. Johnson, you said after five sessions, if you're not noticing anything, then we need to change tactics. Does that mm-hmm. happen often? Um, not so much, really. Most people do, you know, begin to get better and feel better fairly rapidly. And there's a wide variety of why people come in, um, just like there's a wide variety of why people come to their primary care doctor. Um, but, yeah, generally speaking, most people begin to feel better within about a month. Um, and, and, and part of it, too, sometimes the first session, right, they, they come in and they sort of tell their story, as Dr. Harada is saying. They tell their story and they're relieved. 
And sometimes parts of that story have been difficult for them to tell, even their friends or their family, because they're afraid of their reactions or they're afraid of being judged by them. Um, and so that when they can tell a neutral party who also has some expertise um, and, and they're not judged and it's OK, and then we can start from wherever they are. Um, just that unburdening is a sense of relief that is, for many people, uh, sort of surprisingly healing just within itself. And so anybody who would fear the idea of going to therapy, what would you what would you say to them? How would you help them to overcome that perhaps bias that they may have themselves about going to therapy? I think for me, when people come in, sometimes I do get the, you know, I, I can't, this is the first time I'm here. I can't believe I'm, you know, I you know needed this. It's kind of um, that this is your, your time. It's driven by you. And it's a very collaborative process, you know, where they're driving their treatment. They're driving, you know, um, how we approach things. And um, they have a big say in, you know, how they feel this is working. So it's kind of driven by them. It's not directed. So it's not so directed by me all the time. They're actually in more control than when they see me. When you think about it, if we're treating high blood pressure as an example, they can try and direct their treatment and direct their goals. But I'll be honest, the Joint Commission on Hypertension pretty much set down where they're <laughs> supposed to be. There's, you can argue with them, but they're not really going to listen. So here's your goal. you got to be at a certain level. So you actually have more control in a psychotherapy situation than you would even seeing your primary care doctor. Like cholesterol, listen, it's got to be below a certain level. You can argue. We can argue, we can discuss, but we're not going to change our level. So you're right. It actually gives them more power mm -hmm. to be able to set goals and direct their treatment and decide where they're headed mm -hmm. and have somebody help them to get to that place. Oftentimes I tell people uh, for something like anxiety or depression or something like in that order that I've got a huge bag of tricks. And um, and after I get to know you a little bit, I, I'm going to begin to understand what is driving this issue for you. And I may suggest something. And you tell me, are, are you going to try it? Does that sound something you'd like to try? If that sounds so ridiculous to you that you're, you just know you're not going to do it, just say, Martin, that, that's not happening. I'll go, OK, try this instead. Right. So, so, you know, any good psychologist is going to have so many different approaches. As you said earlier, there's so many different types of therapy. Last time I saw a published article, it was over 300 distinct approaches to psychotherapy. And every psychologist I know is trained in at least several of those. So, so yeah, you, the, the person coming in has a lot of control. Um, and the other thing I, I would tell anyone thinking about coming in for psychotherapy for the first time is go meet the therapist and it's kind of like meeting the friend of a friend. If it's not like, hmm, okay, kind of interesting. If it's coming out like more like, eh, it's like, okay, go find another therapist. There's, there's lots of us out there. Um, so you're not stuck with anybody. You give it a try and um, see, if, you know, see if it's not working for you. Yeah, I think these days it's even easier, mm -hmm. again, to, to change psychotherapists than it is to change your primary care doctor because very often there may not be enough around. So, mm -hmm. you know, you can come in and go, God, I think that Dr. Kozak is a little off the wall. And, you know, you might not have another option depending on what the uh, what the availability is. So, again, you might have more options mm -hmm. with psychotherapy. You guys are convincing me I'm coming to your office. I mean, at this point, why not? It seems easier than going on my own. All right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Martin Johnson, Dr. Don Harada. We're talking about a bag of tricks when we come back after the quick break. We're going to talk about something called a light box and how this might be helpful for you and what it does 
does, and we've got one in the studio. We're going to shine it on me, see what happens. You can join our conversation at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Young, European, and out of luck. When I was uh, 20, 21, I thought uh, that by now I would have uh, at least somewhere to live on my own, be able to support myself at least, maybe support a family. Now it's quite the opposite. I'm Kai Rizdal, Generation Jobless, next time on Marketplace from APM. This evening at 6, following The Body Show. We lay side by side, adjustable beds cranked up for optimal TV viewing, picking toasted almonds out of the gauze. We were Lucy and Ethel, Mary and Rhoda in extremis. Old friends, hard choices. This week on Selected Shorts from PRI Public Radio International. Tuesday at 5 p.m. following Travel with Rick Steves. Aloha. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Martin Johnson and Dr. Don Harada. We are talking about psychotherapy and depression, which is something that can happen at any time, often under-recognized in children. And we're talking about some ways in which people can get some help. Now, a lot of folks have a stigma about going to see a psychotherapist, but there's a lot of things they can do to help you. And if you're if you're spinning your wheels trying to treat the same condition again and again, you're not getting anywhere. Maybe it's because you need to talk to somebody who's a professional who can help guide you down a different path. If you've got a question, if you've ever wondered, what is psychotherapy and, and is this something that you might want to consider, you can join us at 941-3689, toll free neighbor islands 8 Now, before the break, we talked about one of Dr. Johnson's bag of tricks, and it's called a light box. Now, we've got a device here in the studio, and uh, I want to go ahead and give this a try because I'm always curious, and, you know, I'm not a morning person. So (laughs) shining light at me really early in the morning, so not going to be helpful. But let's try this out. So this is a device you have. It looks like almost the size of maybe like one of the tiny little new iPads, Mm -hmm. um, not the bigger one. How do I use it? And why would I even want to? Sure. So a light box, the, people started using light boxes several years ago for something called seasonal affective disorder or SAD, which is uh, in more northern climates where there's less sunshine, people would tend to get more depressed when it gets dark in the winter. And that's simply because mammals sort of you know, do well, right, in bright light, and they tend to hibernate right, when it gets dark in the winter. So so some people in Seattle, Alaska, northern climates would get depressed every year when the sun was not shining as much. And so they learned that by shining a really bright light on these people for short periods of time, the depression would lift immediately. And more recently, now we're in Hawaii, so I always thought that was interesting, but, you know, we're in Hawaii, there's plenty of sun. What they found more recently is using a light box is just as effective on plain old everyday depression as it is on seasonal affective disorder. Well, I'm a big fan of seasonal affective disorder. I used to think, oh, yeah, really? And then I lived in Minnesota for three years. Okay. And all of a sudden I went, yeah, really? I mean, you know, you leave and it's dark. You're working all day. You come home and it's dark. And it's only 430. Mm-hmm. So I'm with you. I okay. agree with you on the sun. Just don't shine it really too early in the morning. I'm just not well, a happy camper. But let's try it out. Okay. So you've got a light box. Now there's different colors, I presume. Well, you know, there are. And, and there's different... Um, 
uh, different opinions about this, but most of the research that's been done has been done on white light. Um, and so what we have here today is a white light. You can read about it on the Internet. You'll find some people saying, oh, blue light is the way to go. And there's some more exotic lights that people are working with. But, you know, plain old white light works fine. Okay. And that's where most of the research is. And in order to use a light box, um, you turn it on in the morning. Oh, that uh, morning thing again. I know, that morning thing. All right. um, but one of the things it does beautifully is it knocks all the melatonin out of your system. So you wake up. And you feel more awake. You feel much more awake. You're not groggy. Um, hmm. And, you know, some people, it takes three to four days for them to start to feel the uplift if they're depressed. Other people feel it almost immediately. And when you compare that to medication, it's often three to four weeks before people start feeling better. So the light box has that advantage that it kicks in really fast. So the, the main thing about the light box, you can find them online. It's very easy. But it, the main thing you want to know is it's 10 thousand lux, L-U-X, and that's a measure of brightness. That's all it is. Um, you're not going to get a suntan. You're not going to get a sunburn. It's not that kind of light. Um, but you want to put it on uh, 15 or 20 minutes in the morning, set it about an arm's length away from you, and I'm going to turn this light on now, facing away from you, because you don't need to look at it. Oh, I don't need to look at no. it. No. You can look at me, and I'm going to face it at you, but don't look at it. See, she's staring oh, right I'm at Oh, I'm cheating. It. Yeah, that's okay. I'm cheating. It okay. doesn't hurt you if don't you look, look at, at it. the light. There you go. So there the light's go. looking at me. That's right. It's right on Kathy. The but light is I'm on not her looking face, at it. about an arm's length away from her. It's sitting on the table. Yep. There it is. Looks there kind of is. funky. And this sort little of. unit has its own little timer for 15 minutes. So you can sit there and eat your breakfast, be on the computer, do your email, read a book, whatever you want to do, watch TV. It's all good. And just let that light hit you in the face for about 15 minutes. We are so going to do this. And there's a light hitting my face right now. It's pretty bright. It is it's pretty like bright. I got to say, mm -hmm. it's like I'm looking now saying, what did I write down here? But uh, OK, so I'm going to have the light box on. We're going to do this for the next 15 minutes. We are going to see how it goes. Okay. OK. All right. I'm excited. OK, we've got a caller on the line. We've got Bill from Hana. Bill, welcome to The Body Show. Aloha. How are you? Aloha. I have a light box on me. I'm doing fabulous. Oh, my goodness. Yes, yes. Happy holidays. Happy holidays to you, too. What can we do for you? I'd like to just make a quick uh, comment and then a uh, question. Great. All right. Is um, I'm a 55-year-old male. I've suffered from depression since uh, my childhood. Um, um, I'll make a long story short. Is, is I was uh, diagnosed in the, the 90s, um, appropriately put on a class of drug, uh, antidepressant SSRIs. Um, there was a benefit, but there was also a building deficit. And what the deficit was is it created some sort of sleep disturbance. Mm. Uh, this would uh, affect my mood, and when I would go back in, is, is the doctors would mistakenly think that my depression is, is, is wor uh, worsening. So when I finally got uh, tr treated for the, for the sleep disturbance, then I, can, I became a victim of, of um, Pfizer's criminality around a drug called Neurontin, which is gabapentin. Uh, some doctor thought it would be uh, safe to uh, prescribe right me 5,400 milligrams a day. I lost my mind. I'm sorry, Bill. You said 5,400 milligrams a right. day. That sounds like a pretty... Darn large dose, I'll tell you. Okay. Yeah, darn, uh, darn, uh, darn right it was. It's, it's, it's uh, destroyed my life. 
I've lost my wife, my family, my business, my good name. I'm considered to be one of your finest artists in the state, and I can't even get my my saw my foot through any gallery now because of the behavior around being on such a gross amount of that criminally um, promoted drug. So now, what's your question, Bill? So you said you had a comment. Well, is is the question is is uh, how well is research now starting to address that SSRIs either create or aspirate restless leg, um, periodic limb movement disorder, a whole host of them. It's a good question, and Bill. That, and it's and is these side these side these side effects are just unacceptable. Well, and, you know, one of the things that you bring up is the fact that we've prescribed a lot of medicines for a long period of time with the intent that this was going to help somebody. And we're now seeing that there are some negative consequences to being on different prescription medications for years. Um, and, and a lot of these things, we had the best of all intention. We thought, you know, hey, let's treat with this particular medication. And whether it be for something like osteoporosis or whether it be for something like um, depression or whether it be for some other condition, now we're seeing that these medicines have been around for a while and there's potential side effects that we never anticipated. Now, certainly, I think in this situation, you described a dose of a medication that seems fairly high. It's a medicine I use very infrequently, the gabapentin and a Neurontin, for those people who need it, it works very well. But that seems like a fairly large dose. So it's hard to know if some of the difficulties that you're experiencing and describing are related to your exposure to SSRIs or maybe a, a high dose of another medication. But you bring up a really good point, which is how much research is being done into the side effects of some of these medicines. Now we're seeing a lot of new SSRIs come off patent, and we're seeing that they're now available in generic, which means they've been around for a certain number of years. And research really isn't looking at it as much as it could. I think we need to, as a society, take a look and say, hey, you know what? There's a lot more to treating depressive symptoms than just taking a lot of pills. And, you know, as Dr. Johnson brought up earlier, light boxes and other sorts of things can be considered. There are over 300 different forms of psychotherapy available. And so maybe reaching for the pills is not the best idea in all circumstances. And certainly if you're having a lot of side effects, that makes it a fairly difficult thing to undergo. So I do hope that we come up with more information. And Bill, you bring up a really important point, which is two things, actually. Number one, diagnosed when you were young as, as a child. That was one of the myths we talked about a little earlier in the show. And the second one is side effects of medicines and how come we're not looking at that more carefully. And I hope we start to. But in your case, I do hope that your symptoms are a little bit better treated now without some of those medicines. And I hope you're able to get your artwork out there and get your life back in order because I hate to hear that with with supposedly good intentions you've had all these negative effects so I do wish you the best Bill now Dr. Johnson do we hear this often I mean psychotherapy is not using medications so we'll clarify that now now the light box is shining on me I'm kind of enjoying it a little <laughs> like I'm under a spotlight um, but as a psychotherapist you do not prescribe medications um, in this state, psychologists do not prescribe. There's only a couple of states where they do. 
Um, but but just addressing generally treating um, depression and with psychotherapy and with medication, uh, there is a recent JAMA uh, article that just came out. Um, there's a meta study that suggests that the antidepressant medications, the SSRIs, um, are really not all that effective in cases of mild and moderate depression, but are much more effective in cases of severe depression. So, so you know, the question is, you know, do you even need to really be considering medication if you're not severely depressed? Um, you know, the, the, the large body of evidence is the most, the most effective way to treat depression is a combination of psychotherapy and the antidepressant. Um, but, you know, psychotherapy, uh, oftentimes we, we help people overcome depression without medication. Um, it really depends on the individual and the circumstance. Well, and I think that's the one thing that, you know, certainly as a doc, I'm the first one to say, I think we use too many pills in general. We put people on a lot of prescriptions and some of these prescriptions interact with one another. And if somebody starts taking a supplement, who knows what's going on? So I'd be the first one to agree with you on that. I Mm -hmm. think almost in a way in the last maybe decade or two, we've become, I don't know if it's like, give me a pill to make me fix whatever is wrong with me. And I often see people coming in saying, I've got a cold. I want a pill. I want an antibiotic. Or, you know, I've got a problem with something in my diet. I want to just take some pills to counteract that but not treat the real issue, which is I ate that to begin with. Mm -hmm. Do you find, Dr. Harada, that are people who see you, are they already self-selecting to say, I don't want to take medication? Or do you see people in conjunction with prescribing doctors and work with people on medication? What is your thought on using prescriptions to treat some of the symptoms that you also treat with psychotherapy? Um, my, my training in psychology, both my pre-doctoral and post-doctoral training has been in health, in health centers so, uh, and in medical settings. So oftentimes I do work, we've, the, set up, the model was to work in conjunction with primary care doctors. So um, when there is you know, the issue of medication that comes up to treat depression, um, the doctor, we were right there. You, you work know? together with it, mm-hmm. which is great because I, I love that when that happens, when I have somebody who says, hey, listen, I'm working with somebody. I'm treating them for this. I think they might benefit from this type of medication. I'll monitor them with you. We'll do it together. And great. I'm on board with that. So so you originally started in a model where that's how mm-hmm. things worked. Yeah. Okay. And, and I think to answer the other question, I think people do um, – come to me, it, it really varies. So some people say, I, you know, I'm depressed. I don't want to take any medication. You know, I, I think that, you know, I can do this without medication. And some people do um, get to a point where they're like, I, I want to try whatever it takes to help me feel better. You know, so it varies. So either way, mm-hmm. do you see a difference in the efficacy of psychotherapy in either one of those groups? Or do you feel that if somebody really is motivated to work on the steps, work with you, set some goals and achieve those, that medicine or no medicine it could go, they could get to that goal anyway. I think where it helps a lot, where I've seen it help, especially when I did work in um, the healthcare settings, is when people have the depression where the a lot of the symptoms that keep them from working on things is, you know, they have more of the sleep problems, the eating problems, just the lack of energy, feeling really slow and fatigued and difficulty just, you know, activating themselves. So once the, they do take medication, they're able to get themselves in. They're able to start um, thinking, okay, this is the things I can do to kind of, um, you know, get myself out there to exercise or to, you know, make some social contacts. Whereas, you know, so it kind of takes that edge off of the, you know, I can't even get out of bed in the morning. Sure. It's really hard to say go exercise if you don't even want to get up. 
and you have no energy. I mm-hmm. mean, that's often an unrealistic recommendation to say to somebody, well, you'll get better if you do a lot more activity. I'm so sorry you don't have enough energy to do it, but you have to push yourself. One of the really cruel things about depression is it makes you not want to do any of the things that will help you overcome the depression. It's like, yeah, it's like a vicious cycle. You generally don't want to go out and socialize, which would really help. You don't want to get up and move around and maybe exercise. You don't want to get up in the morning. Um, Okay, I'm not depressed, but I don't want to get up in the morning. (laughs) I'm just not a morning person. And, And so until something happens to help you begin to get over that edge of depression, it really is hard to engage, as, as Dr. Harada says, in, in the things that are going to help you um, eventually overcome the depression. All right. We've got a caller on the line. We've got Doug from Wheelie Doug, how are you doing today? Uh, hi. Um, I'm enjoying the program, and I'm just curious, what is the misdiagnosis rate on depression? Uh, sometimes the physiological symptoms, uh, the physician may say, I think you're depressed when they're not really listening uh, or further pursuing physiological basis. So I'm sure there have been studies that must have said how often uh, this mis- this uh, uh, depression has been mislabeled or misdiagnosed. Can you cite anything? Well, curious, Doug, let me just clarify. Do you mean people who are told from their from their primary care doc or somebody, oh, you're just depressed, but it turns out maybe they have low thyroid or they're anemic? or Is that kind of what you're talking about? Yes, their primary care physician does not pursue anything further uh, claiming it's uh, likely depression. That's interesting, you know, because it's a curious way to look at it. So it's like people in my profession who are saying, oh, you're just depressed, and you know what? It's so not your thyroid, it can't be. And then after how many times do you finally check a thyroid test and go, oh, my God, look, it's really their thyroid. So interesting question. It's From my perspective, I'm not quite sure if I know the exact rate of misdiagnosis in a primary care setting when there's another physiologic basis. Because this type of statistics that they've looked at are, for example, how long would it take somebody to get diagnosed with hypothyroidism Mm. from the initial time they say I'm tired to when you actually do a blood test that shows it. So they often see people in that particular diagnosis, low thyroid, that have subclinical hypothyroidism before they manifest into full low thyroid. And you're looking at a, a spectrum of of the thyroid function. So you could wind up seeing one in 10 who you say, oh, you know what? I think you're just depressed and it's not your thyroid when in fact it really could be thyroid. So we're actually looking at it in my profession as the specific diagnosis. Anemia, for example. You know, how often are women told that you're depressed when they're really anemic and women more than men just because of the statistical likelihood of anemia more in in females. But it, it depends. You know, it's a good question because we look at the individual problem and say, here's how often you miss it, not necessarily the group of all the problems and saying, here's how often you misdiagnose it as depression. Mm-hmm. But coming from the world of psychotherapy, Dr. Johnson, Dr. Harada, do you see people who you go, you know, maybe there's something else going on physically and have them go back to their doc and find something? Because I would say we might miss it quite a bit in primary care if we don't do the testing. And and I'd like to hear from you guys, mm-hmm. how often is it missed because you see somebody who presents to you first and they haven't had the testing done already? Well, well, first let me address that when <clears throat> when primary care refers over, which is, which is fairly common, <clears throat> typically my experience is 
depression is the last thing they consider. They've already run all the labs. And then after they exhaust all the medical procedure labs, they go, oh, well, go see, the, go see that psychology guy because it you know, it's not something that I can help you with. Um, so while I'm sure it, it might happen that way, it's not my experience that primary care um, goes to depression first. It's more like that's the last thing they, they lean back on. Um, I know when, uh, when people skip primary care and come directly into my office, um, we ask questions relating to thyroid, particularly um, some, sometimes to anemia. But, you know, anemia, uh, being tired is not the same as being depressed. So, you know, it, it's pretty yeah, – that's uh, – There's different really, subtle symptoms yeah, that you can really distinguish. Yeah, thyroid is really the one we want to watch for right. that would mimic depression. Um, and, and so, you know, I think maybe Dr. Harada's experience is different working in uh, – right with the primary care docs. And so I don't know how that has worked out in your history. Mm-hmm. Well, in, in my experience working with primary care doctors, um, there's always a free-flowing um, exchange of information and what they call curbside consultations where, you know, they'll pull me out and they'll say, oh, you know, we have this patient. And so it's kind of where the information is already there. They've already done, you know, the labs. They know what's going on. And it's kind of like a there's not a separation of it's either this or that. You know, it's either their thyroid or it's their psychological state or it's either their chronic disease. It's kind of like we look at the interaction of both. It could be everything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Don Harada, Dr. Martin Johnson. When we come back, I'll tell you about the light box. It's been on me for about 15 minutes or so. And we'll talk a little bit about what that sort of does and how that changes you. And if you want to join us, you can at 941-3689, toll-free neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. We'll be right back. Stay with us. On the next Humankind, I hate to say, but my bubble has been a little bit burst in terms of lots of us come to med school with a I'm going to save the world mentality. Medical students discuss the healthcare system they'll work in, which some see as excessively money driven. I'm David Freudberg. Join us for Humankind. This evening at 6.30, right after Marketplace. Hi, I'm Michael Feinstein. On the next Song Travels, my guest is guitarist, singer, and songwriter Jose Feliciano. His Christmas song, Feliz Navidad, has made him a household name, but his eight Grammy Awards are proof of his extraordinary songwriting and performing ability. Don't miss Jose Feliciano on the next Song Travels from NPR Music. Saturday at 3 p.m. following the Moth Radio Hour. Aloha. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Don Harada and Dr. Martin Johnson. We are talking today about depression and psychotherapy. And what are some of the things that you can do to help with mood issues that don't necessarily require taking a lot of medication unless, of course, you and your therapist and your doctor decide you need it? Before the break, we were talking with Doug from Awili Ely, he was wondering, how often is it misdiagnosed? How often do you wind up in a situation where you might have a medical condition that is underlying that wasn't really identified? We mentioned a couple of common conditions, thyroid, sometimes anemia, although that's a little less often. And, you know, Dr. Johnson, you mentioned a lot of people come to you after they've had the testing done. I have to say, I'm somebody who says to someone when they come in the office, listen, let me do what's in my area of expertise. I'm a medical doctor. I 
may think that you're depressed or you have anxiety or something else. Mm -hmm. But I need to make sure that this is not thyroid because I've had a couple of cases, hyperthyroidism. Somebody Mm -hmm. comes in with anxiety, told they have a panic disorder, and you find out that their thyroid's going nuts. Or I had one young guy who had a panic problem, and he also had a funny heart rhythm issue. Mm -hmm. So he would panic, but his heart would go up to 150 because he had a medical condition. So those two things, like you mentioned, Dr. Harada, came together at the same time. So he was pursuing it as if, you know, I have a panic issue. But then we finally caught this funny heart rhythm on a monitor and went, oh, boy, yeah, you do. But if my heart rate was that fast, I think I might panic as well. So, you know, there was that interaction that was pretty direct. So, you know, Doug, you brought up a good point. How often do these things coincide? And more often than you might than you might think. I think one of the important things, and, and we're moving in this direction as rapidly as we can, is is having psychologists work more closely with primary care physicians. Um, you know, just, just the example you mentioned, I have a couple of patients currently um, that have heart arrhythmias and, and other uh, difficulties with, with heart rhythms. And it is sort of, it has now sort of played into an anxiety condition um, and then teasing that back apart, right? And, and so when are they panicking and when do they just have a heart arrhythmia? And do they have to be afraid of the heart arrhythmia? Usually not. Um, and sort of reassuring them and, and helping them manage the anxiety and then also having the doctor manage the, the heart situation um, simultaneously and, and having that gel to take some coordination and collaboration. Well, and I'll be honest, I think a lot of times we may, I may be just as guilty saying to somebody, okay, you've been diagnosed with diabetes. You meet the criteria to have diabetes. And there's a whole other psychological impact of that diagnosis on that individual that I don't address. I say, you've got this sugar problem. We've got to have you reduce the sugars in your diet. We've got to have you take this medicine. This is where you need to be medically. And yet underlying all of that is this huge idea of this diagnosis and all of their perceptions about it and their misunderstandings, or maybe their correct understandings. And I don't have the ability to to focus on how they feel about diabetes as much as I need to and urgently need to treat it. Do you see that happen in your practice, Dr. Harada, that people come because they get a medical diagnosis or something else that seems completely overwhelming and they don't quite know how to handle it? Mm-hmm. And their their primary care doc says, listen, handle it because I'm going to treat your sugars and that's where we're going to go with this. Mm-hmm. But they just don't have the time to explore those other issues that might be underlying the diabetes, why they have it or how they feel about it or how to treat it better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of um, – particularly with chronic diseases, they'll come and they'll say, you know, I was told I had this and I have to do this. But there's a whole host of issues, like you said, outside of the primary care office, you know, than just, okay, you have to change your diet, you have to take your medication, you have to check your blood sugars. So it's overwhelming, you know, you get a diagnosis and you're like, check sugars, write down my calories, how much food am I eating, take all these pills. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, there's the whole initial, you know, the fear and the anxiety, you know, that I have something now. Um, and, and some people do um, become depressed. You know, they feel like, oh, you know, they, they kind of, you know, know only specific information. They think, oh, my gosh, I'm this is it for me. I'm going to be unhealthy, you know. But then along with that comes just the day to day. You know, I have to how when am I going to find the time to check my blood sugar? Um, everybody in my house eats this and this and I, I have to buy special food just for me. You know, that kind of thing. And those are the kinds of things that kind of add to the stress and the anxiety. You know, just there. It's not just them. It's the environment that they have to go back to. 
Also, sometimes uh, when people get a diagnosis that can be life-changing, um, it may have certain meaning for them in the context of their family and their history. Um, and, and, you know, maybe other members of their family had had a similar diagnosis at some point. And so, so there's whole other layers of meaning um, that the primary care doctor really didn't have the time or, the, or, or really the training to sort of unwrap with them in terms of what, it, what does it mean now that I have the same disorder or disease? Um, and what does it mean about me? And is, am I going to deal with it the same way my uncle did? Or am I going to deal with it differently? What are my choices? What, what is my situation today? How do I feel about that? And getting, uh, getting really clear and comfortable with your, your own person and this is your own situation um, and, and sorting out what, what is sort of emotional baggage from elsewhere in the family can be, go a long way towards helping them get on a positive path towards, towards health. Well, and that's another reason why someone might want to seek the help of a psychotherapist is they were diagnosed with a chronic illness or they're dealing with multiple illnesses and they just feel overwhelmed and they need to figure out a way to be emotionally healthier so that they can be physically healthier because those two things are directly tied together. There's no way that you can have one without the other, really. You need to be integrated with both of those areas. Now, we've got a caller on the line. We've got Ray from Kapolei. Ray, welcome to The Body Show. Aloha. Aloha. What can we do for you? I don't recall being specifically, you know, uh, depressed. But about 15 years ago, uh, I had to change primary care physicians uh, at Kaiser. And the new doctor said that as a routine, she orders thyroid function tests on all new patients. Uh, I was hypo, and she uh, you know, gave me the uh, levothyroid. With the very first pill, it was, you know, within about three hours, it was like a veil being lifted off my, you know, head and, and eyes. It was, things were clear, and uh, it, was, it was, I called it a miracle medicine. <laughs> Kudos to your new doc who checked that because, you know, oftentimes insurance may not cover to do screening of certain tests or it may not be listed as one of the recommended tests to do at certain times. So I'm happy to hear that you you've had that diagnosis and you had such an impact. Yeah, I, I would encourage anyone to, you know, if you've never had it checked, get it checked. You know, it, it's not a very expensive test, as I understand. Well, and it's just a blood test, Ray. Somebody yeah. might be checking their cholesterol and their sugar. Add it on. Why not? Yeah. All right. Well, thanks for sharing that experience. I really think that that helps to illustrate why we need to be careful not to go ahead and overlook some of the medical causes before, even if somebody doesn't exhibit, hey, I'm depressed, you might not realize you're tired. You don't even recognize how tired you may be because you've just, it's become your new normal. You've become used to it. Now, speaking of tired, so I had the light box on there, Dr. Johnson. So how was that? About 15 minutes. It was mm-hmm. a bright light, I have to say. It's awesomely bright, a little annoying. It is awesomely bright. Yeah. I would agree with you a little annoyingly bright. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, I do feel like it does – you mentioned it makes all the melatonin go away. All right. Well, this is a dark studio. It's a little bit darker. It's designed mm-hmm. to be that way. It's soundproof. But I do feel like this could be something that would help give me more energy, particularly when I hate those mornings, darn it. Um, but I can see where this would be a positive, helpful device. Yeah. And now you mentioned mm-hmm. that it also has been shown to be a serotonin agonist. What exactly does that mean? Well, well, so it does a couple of things. And, and first, let me also acknowledge that because it's 
so bright. And when people are groggy in the morning, it's a little annoying when they turn it on. And I have to say of my patients that I recommend it for, about half of them don't do it. Well, that's a compliance rate I'm familiar with. That's a compliance rate. And part of that is because it's hard to find 15 or 20 minutes in your morning routine to sit quietly. Or you're just sitting there, right, exactly. The other is it's sort of annoying. Um, But of the half that utilize it, um, the vast majority of them feel better within the week. And that's a much faster than uh, typical antidepressant treatment. And I think the reason for that, the theory is, is that not only does it reduce your melatonin, because that's melatonin is regulated by light, it also serves to actually boost the production of serotonin, whereas the antidepressants, instead of boosting production, sort of slow down the reabsorption of, melato- of, of serotonin, excuse me. And so it takes several weeks for it to you know, increase into therapeutic levels. So, so the light box, if it's going to work for you, it's gonna, you're going to feel it, if not in one session, you're going to feel it within a few days. So if you were to try and if you were to say, okay, I want to try a light box because I want to see if this will help me. You mm-hmm. mentioned you can find them online. You have to look for that 10,000 LUX. That has something to do with the measurements of that's how much light how you're getting. That's how bright it is. And that's what the research is sort of based on. Now, my eye doctor wouldn't tell me this is bad. The counterindicate, contraindications for a light box are two. If you're older and you have macular degeneration of the eye, you should definitely see your ophthalmologist before you start. Um, the other thing is if you have migraines and the migraines are set off by bright light. Well, then okay, well, don't yeah, turn yeah, on a bright yeah, light yeah, okay. because chances are um, you're not going to be happy. Yeah. Okay. But those are the two contraindications. And if those aren't uh, relevant to your case, then it's a pretty safe uh, sort of treatment regimen. Um, and and light boxes are available. They they used to be about three hundred dollars, and now they look to start around sixty. So it's not so that, we've really brought that technology yeah, cost down. Yeah, it used to be a huge box that you have to cart around, and now it's like you said, it's about the size of a small um, tablet. Computer. Yeah, it's it's you know it almost looks like it's my phone horizontal. Yeah, and that's how much light is actually shining on you. Now it's a certain type of light. You couldn't just put a flashlight in your eye and say, "Hey, let's see how this goes." It's a different kind of light we're talking about here. It's really the brightness of the light, and um, and it, the ten thousand lux a, a, a fluorescent office fixture is about fifteen hundred lux. So. You know, it's about eight times as much as, as that. So it's a very bright light. I'll get, I'll grant you that. It was a bright light. I was almost seeing some spots a little bit mm-hmm. there. But okay. So this is something people could consider if they wanted to try it. Seasonal affective disorder, you mentioned this might be helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, in addition, even just standard depression, people may respond mm-hmm. well to light therapy. The other main use, and for people who travel a lot, um, is it really helps you adjust to jet lag very rapidly. Uh, you use the light at the new dawn time, the new wake-up time, um, when you're moving between you know vast time zones, and it helps you reset your biological clock because of the melatonin. Now, we mentioned melatonin quite a bit. Melatonin is often sometimes taken as a supplement to help people fall asleep. Mm-hmm. So if you're taking melatonin, presumably you're taking it at night then. I would hope so, yes. Because mm-hmm. it's going to make you sleepy. That's the hope, right. And then when you wake up in the morning your melatonin level goes down so that you're awake, and that's part of what helps you get up, get going, get moving, get get yourself together. And, and one of the things when we talk about sleep disorders and insomnias in particular, um, it's very important to sleep in the dark. And, and that seems so simple, but in today's world with so many lights, um, television sets, computer screens, uh, people reading by uh, electronic reader, um, I'm guilty of that myself sometimes. Oh, I'm so, a guilty one too. So, so you're laying in bed trying to get to sleep, wondering why you're not sleeping, and you've got these lights shining in your eyes. And that all sort of uh, prevents the, the production of melatonin 
um, which is the, the hormone that the brain secretes when, you, when it gets dark and you want to fall asleep. So darkness really does help sleep. And, you know, it brings up that issue that, again, I'm guilty. You like to use the e-reader. I like to watch, you know, whatever TV shows I missed on my iPad. And yet that bright light that's on your eyes, it's not helping you fall asleep, in which case you're not helping yourself if you're having troubles with sleeping affecting the rest of your, your physical health. You know, some people are blessed and they can, you know, watch the, the iPad, the Kindle, the whatever, and fall right asleep. Um, others Lucky are more then. sensitive to the light. But, you know, if if you're going to do it, you can – all of those devices have brightness adjustments. And so you take it down as dim as you can go and still see it uh, comfortably. And, and at least that, that's a, some accommodation. And then, again, the light box, an option if you want to consider it. It's something that you could use, help you with some of your symptoms if you were depressed or if you weren't quite sure. Get your sleep cycle back. I'm sure a lot of people who are flight attendants would would love something like this to help them to accommodate for different areas. Now, if somebody said, okay, I'm convinced. I want to go to see psychotherapists. I think I have some issues I could work on, whether it be depression, whether it be seasonal affective disorder, whether it be, you know, dealing with chronic illness. How can they find a therapist? You have a, a unique thing about your website that helps people to sort of take a look at different profiles of therapists. So how do they find you guys? Well, you know, until about five years ago, most of, uh, most of our referral came from word of mouth. People had already worked with us and told their friends and family, primary care doctors, of course, and those are both still important referral services. But today people find everything online. Um, and so today, our, our website, we have 11 psychologists, almost all of them, there's a few videos still being edited, have little YouTube videos, little short three-minute videos, um, so that people can hear the psychologists speaking about their practice, talking about their approach, and you can get some sense of the person. Because in psychotherapy, with all healthcare, but I think especially with psychotherapy, to be comfortable with your provider, to sort of have a sense of fit, um, is really crucial. Um, to being comfortable about talking things that, that may be otherwise difficult to talk about um, and and getting good results. So on our website, you can see each of the psychologists talking about their practice before you come in. And that website is? HawaiiCenterForPsychology.com. I've Googled it. I got to tell you, I did. So if, if somebody out there is interested, that's where they could find it. Well, I want to thank both of you for being on the show today, Dr. Don Harada, Dr. Martin Johnson. Thanks for sharing your expertise with us. Again, that's HawaiiCenterForPsychology.com, and you can get a lot of good information there. You guys have some great uh, pictures and some great ways that you can see the therapist, etc. So if you'd like to hear this program again, you can click on HawaiiPublicRadio.org, follow the links to The Body Show. You can also find us on Facebook. Our engineer is David Chong, executive producer Beth Ann Koslovich. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. We'll see you next week. I'm going to try a light box for a week. Let's see how it goes. And we'll talk some more. That's Monday at 5 on The Body Show. We will see you then. Mm-hmm.